Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship this morning, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If you're new to Dawson, we're journeying through uh, John's epistle here, 1 John. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to get the Pew Bible in front of you. Turn to page 1021. That'll get you to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I don't know how many of you noticed a a pretty special game, especially for baseball fans, not uh, yesterday, but the Saturday before. It was a baseball game between two arch rivals that go back over 100 years. That's the St. Louis Cardinals and the Chicago Cubs. But they didn't play in St. Louis. They didn't play at Wrigley Field. They played, you remember? Did you see this? They played in London. They played at London Stadium, 60,000 fans, many of which know the rules of cricket much more than they know the rules of America's pastime. Uh, so many of the people that came to that game were people who live here in the States. They're just die-hard Cardinals fans, die-hard Cubs fans. They made a vacation of it, go over to see their favorite teams play. Now, as I was watching at least the beginning of the games here, they were scanning the crowd and I noticed one fan that stood out. And this fan had a brand new Chicago Cubs jersey that he was wearing proudly. Maybe he's 10, maybe he's 11, uh, but I tell you, he did something that is just absolutely inexcusable. He, he sold that beautiful Cubs jersey by wearing a really ugly St. Louis Cardinals hat. Now, <laughs> I'll say that a little bit in jest, but he did something that you cannot do. You cannot, as a Cubs fan, wear a Cardinals hat. You cannot, as a Cubs fan, have a Cubs jersey and a Cardinals hat. Now, maybe he's from the UK here, maybe he's from England, so maybe somebody needs to come by and do a little bit of intervention and say, this is the equivalent right here of you wearing a Manchester United jersey with a Liverpool hat, and he would in that moment known that he just can't do this. Or for somebody that's a little closer to home, if they get confused, all you have to do here in the state of Alabama say, you know, if you go to the Iron Bowl and you've got an Alabama jersey on and you have an Auburn hat on, they will not let you into the stadium here. So they will revoke your ticket. You just can't do this. I mean, to wear the colors and the, the, the symbols of both of these teams show that you're not a fan of either one of them. I mean, if you wear the jersey of the Cubs with the hat of the Cardinals while they're playing one another, You're not a fan, really, of either of them. And it's real tempting, spiritually, for us as Christians who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed per se with the jersey of Jesus, to walk through this world with the hat of the world. And John has that as his very subject here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I hope you would hear the word of the Lord this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For you see, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. This morning, I want you to see two salient truths, two pressing principles in this passage. And the first of which is, is that the love of God, the love of God and the love of the world cannot mix together. One way we could say that is, is that the love for the world squeezes out love for God. The love for this world squeezes out love for God. Now it's interesting, John tells us, hey, don't love the world. The things that are in the world, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, these come from the world. They don't come from God. And so we've got to do a little bit of of conversation here with John because one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible is written by this very person who was writing 1 John 2, verse 15 that says, don't love the world. And he tells us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the what? He so loved the world. Well, are we as disciples then to be opposed to the world if God loves the world? And we have to understand that this, this one word can be used in different contexts to mean different things. And so sometimes like John 3, 16, God loves the world. We're talking about the billions of people that make planet earth home that he has sent his son to die for. So of course God loves the world. And of course we can think of the world as the, as the beautiful canvas of creation. And so of course we can think of the world as the snow-capped mountains and the grassy meadows and the arid deserts and the vast oceans. Of course we can look at the world and see God's creation that is good. And, and, and are we to be opposed to that? No. So what John is talking about in this passage here is not the canvas of creation. It's not the inhabitants of this world that God has set his affection on by sending his son for. What John is talking about here is a part of this world that is sinful and opposed to God and his way. It is a human organization. It is a system that is opposed to the way of God and opposed to the will of God. And anything that is opposed to the way of God and opposed to the will of God, guess what, Christian? We can't wear the hat of. Now, we don't come to church on Sunday morning to feel guilty and have to repent of the good gifts of God that are in this world. So we don't come this morning after you enjoyed this wonderful meal with friends and family members last night and you laughed and you enjoyed the fellowship and the food. You don't have to come this morning thinking, well, that's a part of the opposition of the world here and I've got to repent of that. No, God's good creation. Nor do you this morning have to, have to show up on Sunday morning and to think to yourself that that beautiful baby that curiously looks into the eyes of her mother is actually something that we should not enjoy. Like we enjoy the beautiful breathtaking sunset at the end of the day with the cascading of the colors of yellow and red and orange that just sort of shimmer together. It's in that moment that our breath is taken away by the beauty the beauty of creation, 
So we don't show up on Sunday morning having to repent of the beauty of God's good creation, but on Sunday morning, we all should recognize that there are parts of this world that are not what Jared Manley Hopkins talks about when he says in this beautiful poetry, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. There's much in this world that we say, thank you God for. But there's much in this world that is evil, sinful, and opposed to our Savior and Father and the spirit that lives in us. So there's not a single one of us that doesn't know if we're followers of Jesus, what it is to be robed in his jersey and then pull out of our closet the hat of the world. Now, how do we know when we're wearing the hat? Well, verse 16 tells us. It tells us that there are three primary avenues of temptation that the world is going to sing to you and to me. And they're named here in verse 16. Do you see them in your copy of God's word? The first is what? It is the desires of the flesh. The second is the desires of the eyes. And the third is what? The pride of life. Three avenues of temptation that are old as temptation itself. You need to know this. First John chapter two is really, really important, especially in verse 16, because it is showing us the way that the world entices us, the way the world entrances us. And it goes back to Genesis chapter three, verse six. All you gotta do is hang around with the, the serpent there in the garden as the serpent is tempting Eve. And you know what shows up there? These three original temptations. Well, look. You see it on the screen there. The woman did what? Saw that the tree was good for food, the desires of the flesh. And then was delightful to look at, it's the desires of the eyes. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, the pride of life. So each of these three avenues of temptation, they're as old as Adam and Eve, they're as old as the original temptation, and it is still avenues of temptation that come our way. Now, in different ways, we don't live in the Garden of Eden, but we do know what it is to face the desires of the flesh. So let's talk about that for a second. We hear the word flesh and immediately we start thinking about sort of uh, our skin here. Or we think about what's between our bone and our skin, the flesh that is there. That's not what John's talking about. You're gonna see the word flesh all throughout the New Testament, most often used by the Apostle Paul. And the flesh is talking about those basic desires that we have, that we are tempted to fulfill in ways that are outside of the boundaries that God has set. So God has given us basic desires for food and for shelter, for intimacy, community, friendship, and none of these things are evil in and of themselves but the desires of the flesh are to take God's good gifts and to overflow them out of the banks that he has designed for us. So you take something like food. And all of us know what it is to, to take on the hat of the world when we have this relationship with food where ultimately food's not something that is just delightful to us. And it's not just something that we love for sustenance, but it ultimately leads us into gluttony. And all of us understand what that is. None of us are immune to that. 
a good gift that is blown out of the boundaries of God's good design. Or we take something like sexual intimacy. Intimacy that is as basic to humanity as Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God says to Adam, the first commandment, what does he give to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, of course, the enemy would take the desires of the flesh, which God has given us, the desire of human intimacy in the bonds of, of this covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And what Satan wants to do, what the world wants to do is say, hey, let's, let's spill this out of the boundaries here. And so we live in a culture that is filled with pornography, filled with sexual trafficking, adultery, immorality. These are things that are actually a leech, a parasite upon God's good creation that is a temptation of the lust of the desires of the flesh first. First avenue of temptation. Second avenue of temptation is not just the desires of the flesh, but the desires of the eyes. You can think about that sin of King David. The eyes are good gifts to be able to behold his creation, to be able to hold the beauty around us, to be able to know and to relate to others. But the eyes can be an avenue where our heart's affections are persuaded otherwise. So there's David lounging about when the kings were off to war. And what does he do? He sees Bathsheba and he sees her and says, I must have her and takes advantage of her. And out of that desire of the eyes comes murder and cover up and the actual dissolution of the Israelite kingdom here. We have the dividing of the kingdom that's going to come largely because David and Solomon that come after are, are pilled by the, uh, the desires of the eyes. And, and we, yes, no doubt, we live in a very sexualized culture. We, we can see around us with entertainment, with billboards, on your phones, that there is no doubt that the world is calling out to you. See, behold, have your heart set upon me. But that's not just only what John is talking about here. You see, Jesus would say it this way, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, then your whole body, Jesus would say, will be full of light in Matthew 6, 22. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, is darkness, how great is the darkness? It's interesting. What we see, we can have a relationship with sometimes, oftentimes through the pull of the world that gives our heart to it. So we see things that are not inherently evil, but it's our relationship to those things that can ultimately be us putting on the cap of the world is what it amounts to. So our neighbor gets a brand new vehicle. We're walking our dog yesterday morning. We see the vehicle, we see our neighbor. And instead of saying, man, great for him, great for her, we see and we say, why not me? I've got to have that. He has that. I'm not fulfilled unless I have that. We didn't, even, we didn't even know that model was out. But as soon as we saw it, we realized we had to have it. And if we don't have it, we're not enough. And so what happens here, it, it flows through our eyes. Or maybe last night, you're 
flowing through the end of the night, you're scrolling through Instagram, and then at the end of the night, you see it's July the 1st, July the 2nd, everybody seems to be going everywhere, and you're at home, and you say, why them and not me? Why can't we be there? Why don't we have that? And so the, the desire of the eyes, none of these things are evil, but our relationship to these things, these things end up controlling us and thinking to ourselves, we have to have these. And if we don't have these, then we're less. And so we begin to crave and envy and jealousy can, can spew out of our hearts. And the avenue of temptation is the desires of the eyes. None of us are immune to this. None of us. Desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, finally the pride of life. The pride of life is just, this is your model. I'm enough. Look at me, me, myself, and I. Look at the kingdom that I have built with my hands, with my mind, with my money. That's the, that's the pride of life. That is an avenue of temptation that instead of looking back at your life and seeing all the doors that God's sovereignty has opened for you and all of the providential good that God has done for you, you take the credit. And instead of seeing those people in your work life who took you under your, their wing, and instead of you seeing that all through life, we walk through doors that other people open for us, we go through life thinking, we opened all the doors and it can be subtle. None of us, we all have enough self-respect and kind of false humility that we would never quite say it like that. But that can be the unspoken posture of our hearts. Look what I've done. Look what I've made. These three avenues of temptation are ways that we can put on the hat of the world even while we're wearing the jersey of Christ. Now the question is, is how can we resist any of this? The, these are temptations that are not just out there far, far away in a foreign land. Wouldn't you admit that these are temptations, they have our heart as their home address. We know them well. We know the desires of the flesh. We know the desires of the eyes. We know the pride of life. There's not a single one of us that doesn't know what it is to have these temptations before us. What is the hope then that we can walk not bound to the world? And this is where we have to go back to Genesis chapter three, because there is one. There is one who has faced the same temptation that Eve faced and Adam faced, and instead of succumbing to it, won victory over it. It's interesting when you read the gospels that one of the pivotal points in the gospels is not a garden, but it's a wilderness and it's another temptation to counter. And in Luke chapter four, you find these three temptations as the temptations that come before Jesus in the wilderness. Let's go back and review those. In Luke chapter four, Satan says to Jesus, how many days have you gone without food? 40 days? I bet you're hungry. I bet you're really hungry. How about, you see those stones over there? 
How about you do a David Copperfield, a David Blaine, and all of a sudden you just snap your fingers and you make those stones into rolls, the desires of the flesh. That's what the enemy is appealing to. And then the second temptation is, is Satan takes him to a high point and says, look, behold all that is the kingdom in a word, I will give it to you. What is Satan appealing to? The desires of the eyes. Third temptation, takes him up to the top of the temple, says jump off and you could command your angels to catch you. And in that moment, what is Satan doing? He's appealing to the pride of life. He is wanting Jesus to say, I can do it in my way, in my words, in my time. All three temptations, Jesus faces and all three temptations, Jesus responds with the antidote to temptation, which is the word of God. And as Eve gave into the temptation and Adam gave into the temptation in the garden, so we have in Christ one who has conquered and defeated these three avenues of temptation. So how do we defeat, how do we defeat temptation? We get close to him. We get close to the one who has defeated temptation. We remind ourselves that greater is he that lives in us than he that lives in the world. So this is the principle. If love for the world will squeeze out love for God any and every day, then love for God squeezes out love for the world. This is the very principle of verse 17 here. This is what John says when he talks about the investment that we make into the world. Hear it again. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So one of the ways that we show that we're wearing the jersey of Christ, one of the ways that we jettison the hat of the world is that we know him, love him and obey him. The alternative is to invest in the world. And guess what? This is what John tells us here. It is a faulty investment. It always will overpromise and underreturn. Of, of course. You can give into the world and feel satisfaction in the moment. Of course, you can put on the hat of this world and, and feel pleasure in the moment. But you know this. It might taste great, but it is, it is always less feeling. It is always unable to truly satisfy you. This is what Augustine was talking about in his confessions, where he says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I mean, we look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And the world is screaming out to us, like the, the, the siren singing to us, give us your affection, give us your heart. I promise you, you will be fulfilled. And we know this isn't the case. The word of God tells us that. And the experience of life tells us that also. The world always overpromises and always underreturns. But here's one, here's a way in opposition to the world <laughs> that never, never overpromises and never underreturns, And that is to know God, to love God and to follow God. So what John tells us here, it's very interesting. I want you to see this real clearly in verse 17, because it's one of the ways that we avoid the temptations of the world. It isn't that John tells us in verse 17 and 18 and following, here's 10 strategies to overcome the desires of the eyes. Here's nine strategies to overcome the desires of the flesh. 
Here's eight ways for you to walk in freedom from the pride of life. He doesn't say that. You know what he says? He says, obey the father. Do the will of the father. This is your path to glory. This is your path to obedience. This is your path to true joy. So if you're here this morning, one of the ways that we throw off the cap of the world is by growing in knowledge of Jesus, in intimacy with Jesus. And as we grow in knowledge with Jesus, we love Jesus more. And as we love Jesus more, we obey him more. And the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. A couple years ago, I went into this little Lincoln kick. Uh, Abraham Lincoln read a few biographies and then went on to one of uh, a really wonderful book by Doris uh, uh, Kerwin's uh, good, uh, Doris Goodwin Kearns, excuse me, that is entitled The Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. So it's an interesting thing that, that Lincoln did that sets him apart from most just human beings nonetheless presidents, had this uncanny ability to pull in people that did not like him and opposed him and hold them close to him. He had this uncanny ability to, to outpace the expectations of even his rivals. So one of his rivals was William Seward. Seward is from New York, He's vying for the nomination from the Republican party to be the president. And he's going up against Lincoln and he thinks to himself, surely I'm more qualified than Lincoln is. Lincoln in his mind is a political novice. He is someone that has failed this uh, political uh, vying and the next one and the next one. And so he thinks that he's just got it into the bag. No doubt that he is going to be the next presidential nomination. And so uh, nominee, and he is just overwhelmed with disappointment when Lincoln gets the nod instead of himself. And he vies to, to really cut the legs out of Lincoln publicly and privately. So he just goes around and, and he is consistently undermining the work of Lincoln. He's consistently bad-mouthing Lincoln. And you know what his reward was for this? Is that when Lincoln is elected as the president, Lincoln appoints him secretary of state. What in the world is Lincoln doing? Why would he do that? Well, again, team of rivals, the nature of the book is one of the things that Lincoln does. He brings these people that opposes him that have great political ability. He brings them close in. Seward still for the first year opposes Lincoln. And he, and he tells people, I'm going to use Lincoln as my puppet. And so what I want done, I'm gonna be able to do through Lincoln. So privately and publicly, he's opposing Lincoln, he's undermining Lincoln, he's talking bad about Lincoln, and then something begins to change. And you know what changes? He gets to know the president as a person. And he realizes that never once had he pulled the wool over Lincoln's eyes, that the entire time that he was opposing him, talking bad about him, Lincoln knew. And Lincoln still allowed him to be the Secretary of State. And so what begins to happen is, is the more that Seward gets to know Lincoln, the more that he begins to love Lincoln, and the more that he loves Lincoln, the more that his affections and his allegiances go to him. So he goes from being an arch rival to an ardent supporter. 
And much of this is born out of them just sitting around at night by the fireplace talking about what's going on and the difficulties of the government at this very pivotal time in America's history. This comes to this culmination, as you know, in history that Lincoln is assassinated. Seward also has a failed assassination plot against him. Seward is unconscious for two days. He wakes up and he knows immediately that the president is dead. The flag outside his window is at half mast, but he also knows that the chair next to his bed is empty. And he knew that if Lincoln was alive, he would be in that chair by his side. He goes from an enemy a rival to a friend, to one who is allegiant. We're all in rival to God. We're all in opposition to God. We all are swept by the current of this world, but God shows us through his son, mercy and forgiveness. And we're so captivated by the mercy and forgiveness that we receive that we begin to know him and to study his word and to to bow our knees in prayer. And the more that we grow a knowledge of him, the more that we love him and the more that we love him. So our heart follows and obedience follows. We never obey those we don't love. Not truly, not fully. Yesterday, I was with some friends, Danielle and I were along with our boys and they were asking us, you know, when did y'all meet? And so we were kind of quick with that story and they just simply said, was it love at first sight? And we didn't go into this, but I was thinking about this. I mean, it wasn't love. I don't really believe in love at first sight, but I do know this in my own life. There was, there was interest at first sight. There was a lot of interest at first sight. There was enough interest at first sight that I said, who is that? And how can I spend some more time with her? And and what's your phone number? But love was built, not at first sight, but love was born out of, well, it was born out of a lot of meals together. Love was born out of Danielle and I shoulder to shoulder walking miles and miles and miles of the campus of Mississippi College, getting to know one another. And the more that I got to know her, the more that I loved her, and the more I loved her, the more I said, I want to give my heart to you till death do us part. There's not a single person in this room that doesn't hear the siren song of the world to put on the hat of allegiance to it. And I'm here to tell you the best strategy in the face of the temptation of this world is to fix your focus on your heavenly father. The best strategy in the face of the world's temptation is for you to meditate upon his mercy. The best strategy in the face of the world's song of temptation is to once again fix on the forgiveness that you've received in Jesus. Here this morning, I'm inviting you to do the words of that beautiful hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. Who has your heart? That's who has your allegiance. Who has your heart? That's the cap that you're actually wearing. Let us pray. 
Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.